Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Bonsoir et tous, bienvenue dans la prochaine épisode de Sha'ir Nightlife. Ce soir, je voudrais inviter Fir Bilal, un musulman français converti de Singapour. Excusez-moi. Bonjour. Désolé, ce spectacle est public anglais. Oui, oui, oui. Merci, merci. Apologies, I thought for a moment we were doing a broadcast in France, but uh, it's apparently it's English broadcast in Singapore. Uh, so I hope, uh, welcome to Shahero Nightlife episode 10. Bilal meets Bilal post rivet stories, La French Connection. Okay, uh, let me bring in the panelists right now. So I'm really trying my best not to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, how how did uh oh, what happened? I think the thing was hanging. Okay, how did my French go so far, <laughs> brother? What it comes bro. Uh, yeah, I mean that's uh that's clearly understood. Uh, no problem, and thanks for putting the effort here. I mean, very clear, very clear. You can survive in France. Merci. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Without much further ado, guys, to, tonight, uh, episode ten, you know, we would like to invite uh, two very uh, in interesting. You know, we invite these two panelists. One is a brother Bilal. He previously was formerly a Christian before he embraced Islam. He's a French national before, and now he's uh, living in Singapore. He's married happily with two children to our famous local actress, you know, Nadia M. Dean. So brother Bilal here tonight will be sharing also his story a bit about his past, how he came to embrace Islam, the challenges he's faced along the way, and eventually how he you know, took on the volunteering spirit in, in Singapore so to, to help the French Muslims here in Singapore. So um, besides that, so we'll invite you know Ustad Hafiz. Ustad Hafiz is known to do a couple of live azan in the mosque here couple of mosques here in Singapore and so we would like him to share about his expertise or so in the Adhan and inshallah tonight we have a surprise for you at the end of the whole episode so on the far right you can see it's a brother Bilal on the top right we'll put him in the front here brother Bilal assalamualaikum welcome <laughs> Walaikum salam uh, bismillah how are you brother how are you brother alhamdulillah. yeah alhamdulillah all good thank you thank you for and inviting me I uh, appreciate that Thank you so much. Okay, before you start your story, I will also uh, show who is the brother Hafiz. Okay, so next is the brother Hafiz. Yeah, we we'll start. Yeah, and brother Hafiz at the below we have is brother Iskander, here from the Netherlands. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what happened is his uh, microphone is not working today. So, <laughs> yeah, he will be asking questions questions uh posting questions to me and i will help him ask those questions okay so without much further ado brother bilal please share with us you know uh, before we begin i'd like to ask you is it le front le, le french connection or is it la french connection le or la 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 french connection la okay yeah, why I... why la uh that's uh that's a very tough question even i cannot answer that <laughs> Do you know that uh, in, in, in French language, we have gender for anything? So mm. even connection in, uh, in French is uh, it's like she, it's like feminine, uh, oh. which might not make sense at all. Uh, it doesn't mm -hmm. make sense to me. But 
it is like that. So uh, if you want to know le or la, you just have to learn by heart. There is no explanation to that. So it's okay. la French connection. Oh, la French connection. Okay, merci, merci. Okay, so <laughs> brother Bilal, please uh, proceed. You know, share us how you uh, came to embrace Islam. Sure, sure, alhamdulillah. Uh, so, okay, um, I'll try to do the, the shorter version this time because I'm cautious about time and there's a lot of things to share. So uh, how I came uh, to uh, the world of Islam was uh, related to uh, firstly childhood. This is how we started. Um, I grew up in France and as most of you know, uh, the Muslim population in France is uh, very extended. Uh, there is a very large number of Muslims, uh, most likely from uh, coming from uh, uh, Africa, um, Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, what we call the Maghreb uh, region, and some other parts of uh, Africa, more uh, down uh, South uh, Africa. And uh, well, the, the fact of the matter is that I grew up with uh, with friends in school that were Muslims, so I was. Uh, exposed very early to some of the practices that they have. And then one of the triggers was uh, when I got invited to uh, my friend's place, uh, who is my best friend. His name is Khalid. He actually lives in Singapore. He's French Moroccan. Uh, when I went to his house, I was very surprised to see that uh, his family really like treated me like a king. They really like, uh, you know, cooked their best food, a uh, lot of food, a lot of food uh, that was way too much but i was absolutely very kind and they really like put the best effort to uh make me feel you know um like a very special person uh and you know it's not that you know they had like uh extra means to to do that they were quite a humble and modest family um and i really respect islam for that in terms of you know it's a lot of sharing and uh giving and uh, the charity and uh, the brotherhood so that's something that uh early uh in my childhood really uh uh brought me to like and enjoy the Islamic values. But uh, moving forward, um, a lot of things happened in my life. So when I actually moved to, uh, when I moved to UK, I actually met uh, some Muslims there. So I started to live overseas uh, for an internship and then I moved to Birmingham. Birmingham in UK is, uh, is uh, the second city and uh, there is a very large population of South Asian, uh, including Pakistani and Bangladeshi. So there is a lot of Muslims, a lot, really. And the thing is, um, I, I met some Muslims from different parts of the world, from Egypt, from Pakistan, from Bangladesh. Uh, one of my best, best friends there was from Pakistan. And some of my friends later were from Egypt. And the fact in the matter is that uh, every time, you know, I, I, I used to meet with them, they were always like very... Uh, uh, generous, treat me like a brother. They, they knew I was alone there and they really wanted to take care of me. They took me out for activities, uh, invited me to their house. Uh, they were really treating me like a brother. So I really, really appreciated that uh, to the fact that uh, uh, my Pakistani friend even was so generous that sometimes, you know, I could just call him and say, hey, I need help now. Uh, no matter what time it is, uh, he would just come and say, okay, how can I help you? Or even one time he was wearing a, a very nice watch, quite expensive watch. I still remember that day i was eating with him i said well bro your watch is very nice I say you like it just take it as i know say yeah yeah I, I just give it to you and i was really shocked because that's not something that you encounter every day right that kind mm -hmm. of uh generosity and he did share with me that uh, uh as muslims you know this is what they are supposed to do uh the egyptians as well so they were public workers 
construction workers like you know what we have in singapore right and uh um i was working in a hotel and there were guests there and during christmas day um as i didn't go back home i stayed in birmingham i bought a box of chocolate because i i knew they were quite lonely so i knocked their door gave them the food and everything and then they were quite touched and surprised to see that coming from me. So they told me to stay in their room and they brought more food. And one of the brother took my address and he said, I'm going back to Cairo soon. I need your address because I want to send you some gifts. So I was like, okay, I gave him my address in Birmingham, etc. He went back home. Uh, a few weeks down the road, um, I received a parcel uh, at the place where I was staying. And in the in the box there was uh, there was Songkok, there was uh, Jelaba, there was Tasbi, uh, a lot of things related to Islam. And you know, I mean, to be honest, right? This guy doesn't even know me much. And you know, I mean, sending a parcel back then from Cairo to UK, not forgetting about it, etc. And you know, he might you know uh, might not be the richest person in the world you know, whatsoever it is, he put the effort and everything. And I received that from me. I was absolutely touched. I was wearing the song uh, at home, even though I was not a Muslim. I found like it's very comfortable. I was wearing Jalaba as well. You know, it's very nice, right? Very cool and all. The Tasbi, well, I didn't know what to do with it, put it in the corner nicely. I didn't really touch it. But uh, I think those were signs. Uh, so when I moved into Singapore, um, I, I actually uh, uh, met my wife and... Um, uh, before even meeting her, when I first came, the first week I was in Singapore, I did a, I did a tour of Singapore, and I went to the uh, uh, the Masjid uh, Jami Chulia at Chinatown. And uh, and the thing is that uh, I um, I just wanted to visit. You know, I, I did the Chinese temple, I went to the Hindu temple, then there's a masjid, right? So I went to the masjid, and then uh, this brother who was a volunteer really took me for a tour, very good dahua, gave me like a pamphlet to read, explained to me a lot of things. And, uh, you know, I was actually very, uh, very touched by how hospitable he was. And he took the time to explain to me many things. And I was like, wow, really, this is very good. So that really stayed in my mind. When my um, best friend went back to France, he couldn't bring everything with him. So he actually said, I have to leave some stuff with you in Singapore. And one of the things that he left was a French Koran that he got in Dawul Akam when he witnessed uh, one of his friends becoming a convert. So he took that French Koran and said, I want you to keep it. So I kept it with me. So in my house, then I had French Koran, Tasbi, Jilaba, Songkok. <laughs> I was not a Muslim yet. Can you imagine? Uh, and then I met my wife finally. Um, and, you know, we, we put things quickly on the table. She did say that, you know, if, if you want to marry me, you know, you have to become a Muslim. And I was, I'm quite open-minded. So I was like, why not? You know, and I, uh, you know, she said, why don't you learn more about it? Our approach of, of introducing Islam was actually nothing to do with, uh, uh, you know, uh, halal, haram, none of this. It was purely love, good manners, charity, generosity our entire family was like that so i was really molded by those values that i found absolutely beautiful so this really attracted me already to go into that path and get that trust then when i went to daul of course i studied more i went for solar class i felt very uh uh awake and very uh 
very um, how to say you know the spirituality and listening to the Quran and all of this and, and being in a very quiet place I was really captivated by by this and because I have a very good relationship with the teacher uh, I felt like I need to study and it was like a common exchange and uh, you know Ustaz Samir took the time to after class even spend time with me to explain to me more things and I was very curious uh, and at the same time I spoke to uh, Ustaz Mizi as well Mizi Wahid uh, and those were the very cra crazy questions that I had that typically converts um, I mean future converts have before converting about Islam about doubts that they have etc so it really helped me to clarify those doubts um, so alhamdulillah you know I, I I started to fast I started to do whatever I had to do in advance and then I felt the need to convert on my own because I felt I was already a Muslim and it was a very natural pathway nobody forced me it was just my decision I thought that was the right uh, thing to do yeah MashaAllah, such a beautiful story. Guess what? You know, Ustad Saiful Rahman uh, com uh, was also the register for both of me and Brother Bilal here. Yes. Yeah. Correct. That's, a, that's one thing we have share in common, the same uh, register. Yes. yes. Okay, so Brother Bilal, next question that I asked you, like, you know, why you choose the name Bilal? I mean, is there significance to this name? Yeah, so it's very bizarre, actually. Uh, because uh, before I was a convert, so I converted in 2015. In 2011, I went to Sumatra, uh, went to one of the kampong there, and uh, you know, a typical trip to see the orangutan and all of this being, you know, uh, put the tent near to the river, you know, a very cool trip, rafting and all. So when I went there, the people from the village, um, they could not pronounce my name. So they were asking me to have like, to choose a, a Muslim name. So I was like, Muslim name? And the first thing that came to my mind, I don't know why. I thought about this guy from school. His name was Bilal. And I said, call me Bilal. So for a few days, <laughs> his brother, you know, was calling me Bilal. So, you know, that was quite, uh, um, it was already like as if I was Bilal, right? And I enjoyed it. So uh, when I had to choose a name during conversion, I just thought like I, I would just take Bilal and that's it. But the, the, the amazing thing is that I didn't know who this Bilal was. And the thing is, when I told my family, you know, I want to be called Bilal, and then, you know, sometimes they think like, oh, why you, why, why you want Bilal, you know? I mean, it's like the common name of calling someone like, hey, you Bilal, you Bilal. So they were a bit <laughs> like, are you sure you want to have that name or not? <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I told them, you know, actually it's a misconception because it's Muizin, right? And uh, it's just that, you know, we, we call people who make the Azan Bilal, but it's just actually referring to the person who was uh, nominated to do the call of the Azan back in, you know, Prophet uh, Muhammad uh, time. Um, so when I actually look into Bilal's biography, I was like, wow, that carries weight. Uh, he was the one who was selected to do the Azan for everyone. And what I really love about him is not just this. Uh, what I love the most is he was a slave and his faith was extremely strong, even when he was tortured to, tortured to death. And they were asking him to renounce his religion. He said, no, la ilaha illallah. And he was really strong in his faith. And he never gave up because he knew that he could put his trust in Allah and that nothing could happen to him because he would be protected. So in that sense, I was like, yes, I choose that name. Oh, mashallah. That's a very, very good uh, name and context that you gave to why you chose that name. I'm just curious, okay, from uh, since now we have also Ustad Hafiz here, curious uh, what, what would uh, Ustad Hafiz uh, can add, you know, to Bilal's story a bit since you have a bit of, you know, the, the knowledge behind this. 
Wah, Masya Allah. Right, firstly, Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi ta'ala wabarakatuh. Alhamdulillahirrahmanirrahim. Wassalatu wassalamu ala ashrafil anbiya wal mursalin. Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Thank you, Harold Fidel's chair. Thank you, Guillaume Bilal Jean-Pierre. That's how he pronounces his name. Guillaume. Right? Oh, very clear. Mashallah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Nice, uh, mashallah. Very inspiring story. I totally enjoyed that. Although I've known you before, right? But to hear this story right, in full like that was very inspiring. Right? Uh, yeah. Thank you for also talking about this character. Right? He's not just any Bilal. He is. That was the Bilal we're talking about. Right? Uh, Bilal ibn Rabba was. Uh, he 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 was born to. Uh, to an African, to an African mother and a okay. One parent was African, one parent was uh, Arab actually. So he's actually half Arab, half African, right? So but he he was born to into slavery because both his parents were slaves, were taken from Abyssinia, which which is what what is now East Africa, right? What is now Eritrea and Ethiopia across the Red Sea to uh, to serve as slaves in Mecca. So Bilal was born in Mecca, you know? despite his African roots, he was born in Mecca. So, of course, he was born to slavery when he was old enough to become a slave. He became a slave. Right? So, he was given to a master who was very cruel towards him because he, the master got to know that this Bilal had already worshipped the god of Muhammad. Right? That means uh, he would, every time uh, there is some procession or ceremony, he would kind of, you know, in Hokkien, we call it Siam. He was Siam and just go somewhere. You know? So, the employer found out right? and uh, summoned him and asked him, is it true that you're, Ya Bilal, is it true that you're worshipping the god of Muhammad? And he said it's true. So as a slave, he's, he's supposed to listen to the master's commands. But he refused, right? He kept saying, Allah is one, Allah is one. Ahad, ahad, ahad. Right? So he, of course, he was subject to punishment, right? He was dragged across town, right? Uh, on, on horses, right? Uh, and he kept saying, ahad, ahad, ahad. That means if he, if he were to just say, I accept this religion, he, he would have been okay. But he kept saying, Allah is one, Allah is one. So he refused, right? So inflicted even bigger punishment, right? They put a rock on his chest, press it down, he was suffocating, and eventually he passed out. When he regained his senses, that's where he saw the face of our beloved Prophet Muhammad Wasallam, right? Who told wow. him, do not worry, it will be okay. So, mm-hmm. uh, as, we, as we know, uh, our Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, is not someone uh, blessed with a lot of resources, but he, so he asked his very good companion, Sayyidina Abu Bakr radiallahu an, to uh, buy over Bilal. Right? So they got into a, so Sayyidina Abu Bakr radiallahu an, and the ex-master, this time you call it ex-master, uh, had a quick negotiation session, right? Over nine gold coins he was sold right then the ex-master said to uh, uh, made a remark what a fool this guy is this Obaka, what a fool he is i would have sold this guy for just one gold coin because he you know his ego was you're a master your sleeve won't listen to you right <laughs> right he said i would have sold this guy for just one gold coin right and Sana Obaka remarked that if i had to buy him over for a hundred gold coins i would have bought him Right? So you talk about elasticity in economics. Huh? He could have been sold mm. for one gold coin. He could have been sold for 100 gold coins, but he was sold for nine gold coins for the purpose of being freed. That's where the Prophet uh, freed uh, Bilal. And therefore, the Prophet loved Bilal so much and always asked him to do the adhan. Right? The Prophet uh. also asked him, Yeah, Bilal, what is it about you that I could hear your, you know, during the Prophet's journey, during Mi'raj, that he could hear Bilal's sandals, you know, you know, slaves would wear footwear that can make sounds so that the employer knows, knows where they are, right? So the Prophet Muhammad peace upon him said that I heard your sandals up in paradise, right? Bilal's answer was, I have not done anything special except for the fact that without fail, after every wudu, I will perform without fail two raka'ah, solah, sunnah, wudu. By oh. virtue of that, the Prophet Muhammad peace upon him had heard Bilal's sandals in paradise. Yeah. Wow. 
That's such an amazing story. <laughs> yeah. One wow. more thing just to add, uh, since we talk about, you know, uh, uh, Guillaume was talking about cultures, right, in, in France, in Africa, and so on and so forth. Um, our Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, wasn't just a non-racist. He was an anti-racist because people love to give remarks on uh, Bilal saying, hey, you son of an African. The fact is, he's also a son of an Arab, but they didn't call him that. They called him you son of an African, right? That's where the oh. Prophet said, okay, uh, the, the, it's not your race that defines you. It's your piety that defines you. Wow. Yeah, you know, because also Bilal, you know, being, being, I mean, he was born in Makkah, uh, but because of his African roots, he would speak, uh, for example, Arabic with, with an African twang. So, for example, he, when he says, Ashhadu Allah ilaha illallah in the Arabic, right? The letter sheen, maybe in his mother tongue, is not uh, the. Yeah. Same way, the Arabic. Right, and that's where the prophet came in to say that do not tease him because no matter what his other or his piety is still higher than yours. Sorry, brother uh, Hafiz, I think we lost you for a while. Oh, the sure. internet cut, cut you. I think in the last sentence about uh, the, the, the piety. But could you, could you, uh, sorry to repeat okay. again. Yeah, let me let me repeat that part. Uh, so the prophet uh, Muhammad peace be upon him was an anti-racist because any remark done on Bilal, for example, hey you son of an African, and then sometimes his because his uh, his Arabic was with a certain, with a slight African twang, right? Certain thing, for example, Ashadu Allah ilaha illallah. Perhaps in the in his mother tongue, there is no shin sound, right? So he couldn't pronounce it well. It became Ashadu Allah or something, you know? So they kind of, you know, just like you meet someone who doesn't speak good English until you make fun of the person. In the same way, they make fun of his Arabic, right? That's why the Prophet came in to say that do not make fun of that because no matter what, his adhan, his paiti are still better than yours. Oh, was was he the first the first person who actually recite the adhan is also Bilal, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, for those who are new here, you know, uh, who are not Muslims or who are interested to know more about Islam, you know, you hear the call to prayer, you hear it from the mosque, the uh, when the when the muazzin do the adhan, right? There was the time. Then that is where it all came from from Bilal, who started to say the the words for the adhan. Yeah, mashallah. Thanks for sharing that, uh, Ustad. Oh, just want to let everybody know, Sister Risi is here. Hello, Assalamualaikum. Thanks for joining us. Sorry for being late. Um, the story no, okay. is super interesting. Thanks for having me on the show. Mashallah. Everything good, Sister? Good? Alhamdulillah. Um, yeah, everything is good. Um, I just like moved into a new condo and I'm just currently chilling with my 11-year-old sister. And because like my parents are kind of like gone for now, so it's just like I'm the only adult in the house, and I'm 20. So like it's like it's like it's almost like taking care of a kid, you know. Um, she wants to go to the arcade today, but like, uh, you know, kids are just adrenaline junkies. Okay, that's good. Awesome. Okay, thanks. So you're babysitting your sister right now, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, uh, so Brother Bilal, bringing you back on the stream here. Just want to check with you. Okay, next, I'd like to know more about your struggles as a French Muslim. Uh, what I understand in France uh, alone, you know, there's not a very majority Muslim country. And, you know, recently, they also, something like they banned the hijab in, in France and all that. So it must be very hard for you to be a Muslim there, I'm, I'm guessing. So um, was, it, was it hard for you when you reverted? Um, so, um, I mean, that's a very good question. Um, and, and, and the thing is that uh, before I went back home on my first trip after I converted, um, I had some chats with some of the uh, Ustas here to get some tips on 
potential challenges that I might face uh, when you know I will go and visit my family uh, in France. So the thing is that uh, Ustad uh, Ustad uh, Said uh did share with me that he he said to me that uh, you know Bilal, uh, when you will go there, definitely that will be challenging. And if anybody is like trying to to challenge you to be not so friendly to you or having you know bad reaction towards the fact that you are Muslim now. Uh, what you need to know to do is to ignore. Uh, you still need to respect them. Uh, they are still your family members. Or they are still the people around you, uh, and you just need to to you know try to leave the situation. Or uh, what you can do even better than that is um, if they are not nice to you, uh, you know try to smile and try to be even nicer to them. So for example, uh, if you encounter somebody who is you know really making bad comments uh, on Islam or you as a, as a new Muslim, um, go and buy a gift for him and give it to him. And he will feel that he's in a situation where there's nothing much he can do because through the bad remarks that he's throwing at you, you are going back with gifts and love. So uh, I thought that was actually a very good uh, advice, which I applied there because it happened to me actually. So um, I come from countryside and uh, drinking, drinking culture there is heavy and uh, it's, uh, it's really in the norms. It's, it's very social. And, and the thing is that, uh, especially when I went to see some of my uncles, you know, in remote areas, you know, they always want to have a drink. Plus I come from the wine region, uh, Bordeaux. So as you can imagine, uh, there is no, nothing without a drink. <laughs> so <laughs> when I went to, to my uncle's house, um, the first thing that he insisted to do was to give me a, a glass of whiskey. And the thing is that I didn't open up to my family there that I was a Muslim. And I told my mom to not really say about it. And uh, I think he knew that I was. That's the reason why he was acting a little bit different. Because usually we we'll never do that. We'll talk and all. And then maybe we'll have a glass. But this time around, the glass came first, straight away. And I was like, <laughs> sorry, I'm not going to drink that. And he said, why is it so? You know, I've not seen you for a long time. And I said, no, but actually I'm, I'm, I'm driving, you know. <laughs> and, and, uh, he said come on you're driving but you can still have one i said no you know i i i don't feel like it and then he started to be a little bit uh a little bit angry and i thought like uh Ooh, that's not good because my dad was with me and i was kind of uh trapped into a situation where it's very hard to escape because mm. it's the first time i see him i have to respect him and he's my uncle some more uh but at the same time I don't want to stir trouble. Or I don't want to create, you know, tension. So what should I do? So what I said to my dad is, um, I, 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 I just, uh, I just said, uh, Dad, uh, there is an emergency. Like I look at my phone. Sorry, we, we, we just gotta go, and we just <laughs> left. Yeah, oh. because I, I could see that the situation was becoming a bit Not unbearable, especially I was in his house. So I thought I, I don't want to argue nothing, and I don't want to drink. So I, I, I just left. But the fact of the matter is this. I saw him again in a birthday party. And then, of course, he was looking at me, you know, with a bit of a sour face. And even, you know, he, he saw me, he said, why don't you pray here, you know, in front of the, you know, there was like a dance floor or something. Why don't you go and pray here? Like that kind of comments. So what I did was, I just keep quiet. I went to the buffet area. I take some nice food, the food that I know he likes. And then I brought it to his table. I said, hey, uncle, this is for you, you know, and I gave him a kiss, you know, a, a hug and a kiss. Yeah. And he was like, uh, he, he was really like surprised. 
And then since that day, he just became very nice to me. And he never asked me for any drinks, nothing. It was like back to normal. So you see, the tip that uh, was shared with me uh, was actually uh, very, very useful because that really saved me a lot. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Anyway, that was one of the challenges, uh, just to name one. I see. Wow, that's a very, I mean, that's like kind of like go against your natural human instinct, right? In the sense that people would, when they hurt you, you tend to rebuke back. Normal people would just like try to fight for their own freedom of words to to say back at people, right? Especially when they're hurt or they're being affected. It's natural that we tend to argue back, try to prove that we're right. Um, I think what you did was you went the opposite way. We show love and and that itself was the changing point, like a catalyst to help him, you know, see the light more than the darkness that he yeah, thought he would, he would and, expect. And, you know, just to add on to that, uh, Brother Fadaus, this is amazing because uh, I've tried that with more people in my family. And uh, I, uh, hello. <laughs> and um, um, this is what I realized when I was invited at my uncle and auntie's place, you know, I went to different houses. Uh, they even went to the extent of cooking something just for me and my wife, which was to them halal, even though they don't know halal. You know, they asked me, so what can you eat and all in advance? So everybody was having like, uh, you know, beef rib and all very nice, right? But it was not halal. So my auntie made salmon for me and it was so good. And it was even better. <laughs> And the rest of the guys. So they were looking at me like, you lucky guy. Yeah? You lucky <laughs> and, guy. Uh, yeah, it's just amazing. I've, I was extremely, extremely touched to see that they went to that extent of cooking something, especially for me, even though without knowing Islam and all this. Mashallah. Mashallah. Well, people go all the way out seeing that, you know, you show so much love and uh, they would like to show back that love for you as well. I think that's a very good advice, brother. Oh, Today we have uh, Sister Reese's, Reese's sister also on stream. Hi, welcome Michelle. Assalamualaikum. Hello. Hi. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So I hope you you benefit will benefit tonight for tonight's session as well. Um. Okay. So brother Bilal, what about challenges or you know struggles you have in Singapore? I mean, I don't think you should be having much in Singapore. It's like you know very multiracial and everything, right? Yeah, I think Singapore, we're quite blessed for that. Uh, no problem at all, I would say, in my circumstance, but maybe I can, and, and uh, Alhamdulillah, I'm, I'm shukur, you know, I'm, I'm very, very grateful for all of this. But, um, you know, going around and meeting converts and, you know, new people to the faith, uh, maybe I might want to share one aspect that um, I hope will change moving forward for many of those brothers or sisters is that what I've seen many times is that when somebody is going to the faith, they don't always get the support from their Muslim family. Um, mm. Nobody is teaching them by Islam. They're kind of left in a corner. Uh, they have no one to talk to. Sometimes they are a bit shy to go to Darul and meet friends. And, you know, when you meet them down the road after a few months, then you realize that they never pray um, they, they never started, right? They went to the BCI class, they went to uh, the Salat class and all the Da'ul. Um, they kind of forgotten what they have learned. Um, and I, I, I think sometimes um, I, I wish I could see, you know, more of those families, you know, giving love to those converts and trying to guide them 
maybe if they can't, to someone that they know who might be able to help, I think that would be very useful uh, because that saddens me uh, to see that. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, they they really want to grow in the religion, but it's just that they find a little bit of tension or maybe the, their family is not aligned to the teaching from the institutions here, not the same kind of opinions. So these new converts are a bit lost, what to believe, you know, everything's so different. They kind of feel like they are confused and many times they tend to give up. So I think uh, this is something where uh, it's important that those people reach out to uh, people like us and, you know, they open up and we try to be with them like family. I think that's very important. So it's just one aspect that I wanted to touch on because I think this is uh, this is very important. The second aspect for more like Caucasian converts, I would say, is going back to all lifestyle, going back mm -hmm. to all friends, going back to drinking, going back to the stuff we've done before. Even though we try to come down for a while, many months, now we feel like we're okay. And then it's just enough for a phone call from a friend to say, I'm in town, not seeing you for a while. Let's go for a drink. Then you start drinking, then you get that habit again. Uh, and then, you know, it's very hard yeah. to go back on track. So uh, mm -hmm. it's really about, I think, understanding Allah and his greatness and his attributes and really ensuring that he's priority for you more than those things. Then maybe once you master that kind of knowledge then you're able to see that he's all-knowing he sees me in everything that i do uh he created me he's giving me everything why is it that I should be doing that it's not beneficial for me so i think that's something that uh, i also wanted to share that um, i think is a sole problem um, but i guess you probably heard that type of stories many times yeah i mean i can understand uh, where you're coming from i mean previously like even for myself as a revert right we used to have uh things that uh we do which is considered haram now and those things are probably you know when your friend call you out for a drink it's quite a common thing right like it's normal to go for social gatherings and if they do not know you're muslim then they will naturally just ask you you know how about a glass of wine or something so um i think that is also like i mean it's mentioned in the quran that allah was to test us even after you say you want to embrace islam and allah say you know don't 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 think that we will stop testing you <laughs> even after you have embraced islam so i guess this is a, a test of our faith and how much we truly you know believe in what we say the shahada and all that so uh, yes thank you so much brother i think we have a question here from uh brother uh but sister Reezy, she's asking about uh alcohol intolerance um you know her, she's saying that you know maybe you can tell give them this excuse <laughs> yeah maybe you can just say like you're alcohol intolerant like i actually realized like back when i used to drink um i'm actually kind of like alcohol intolerant as in like my stomach would hurt like after a long time so you, you maybe you could just say something like that and just say like oh i've developed like intolerance to alcohol my stomach hurts or like i get diarrhea or something i don't know <laughs> like you can just say something like that um perhaps perhaps not that's just like something that i thought of because like you know it is poison right it does actually poison like your stomach your stomach has to process it and it's actually like if you drink too much you die it's literally poison so you can say like you're just very sensitive to the poison because like when people get older or something that actually happens as well i think alcohol intolerance is more common among asian people but i'm actually not too sure about that but maybe that's just an idea that you could say yeah. well so brother Bila, any any thoughts on what she shared the no you're, you're right uh no no it's, it's good and you know sometimes white lies right uh we have to apply because um there are situations where you might meet someone who is a little bit aggressive 
and uh, if you were to go into the road where you tell him you are Muslim and you can drink, so if you say that you are alcohol intolerant or something else, that might work better. You just save mm -hmm. yourself. Uh, I always tend to be sincere and face the consequences, but I also understand our sister here because uh, I have encountered people as such, and I still remember that I've said that before, and that mm -hmm. helped me. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, but nevertheless, I think um, it's also important not to be antisocial as well. So it's good to draw a line where we cannot be seen as a group that really does don't participate in any, any gatherings whatsoever. I mean, I've encountered situations where my colleagues, they want to celebrate like a new deal. You know, I do sales. So they ask me out. Um, so they would choose a restaurant, but they will sell alcohol. But for me, there will be masala tea and they will always order masala tea for me. I stay in my corner. I'll, I'll, I'll just stay and I'll, I'll stay until if I were to see that they start to be a bit uh, tipsy and drunk, maybe I'll make a move. But otherwise, mm -hmm. I will hang out for a while. It's okay. In my circumstance, not everybody agrees with that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, it's like that. Yes, I I mean I I think it it depends on the situation and the circumstances yeah. that we're in. Um, I have a question here. One is, uh, for example, if you are a born Muslim, and you have a friend who's a non-Muslim, but because they might not know much about Islam, maybe they say, uh, I booked a a restaurant now, and uh, you can join me for dinner. But they did know that the restaurant is uh, serving things that are probably not uh, halal. So, uh, how do you uh, respond to that? Uh, can you give us some advice, about Brother Bilal? Yeah, so I've I've encountered situations like that, and there are two things that I've done. Uh, one was um, there was like a farewell party with work, and then the venue was picked. I was not aware of the venue. Um, and there was an Italian restaurant, and what I ordered was salad. So I just had veggies. That's all. Full stop. Uh, again, depending on you know each uh, to each his own, as we say. Some people might not agree. Um, but uh, and another time. Um, but again, you have to be careful when you do that. Uh, I think that was a Chinese place, and really was very hard to find food this time. Really really hard. So I ordered food from outside. So there's a grab driver who came <laughs> at the <laughs> restaurant. It was very weird though. And he kind of feel disrespectful in a way. So I was a bit shy. And I quickly went outside, tried to hide a little bit, not to show that, you know, I'm having this food delivery. And then I, I asked, uh, I went to the kitchen, I asked the guy to put in a plate. So it doesn't look like, you know, it's all takeaway food. And then uh -huh. I just went to eat and people asked me, I say, yeah, I'm Muslim, but, and I tried to be nice. I said, you know, I, I respect and I was fine, but I really can't eat that. So, uh, and then they were understanding, but yeah. Yeah. I guess, um, what you say is true. I myself face sometimes, uh, these awkward situations, right? They're quite awkward. <laughs> um, I think that's why, uh, it's important for all of us, even whether it's, you know, another religion or another person with a different faith, we should, you know, understand at least what they believe in, right? And what they can or cannot do. So we will not cross those boundaries. Um, I think what you did was probably the best, in my opinion, the best, where to go about it because you can't be rude also if the person was your boss asking you for for dinner right and you can't just say no kind of thing <laughs> it, it will be it will be quite rude in 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 that sense so i guess yeah, yeah. 
for for me i what i do is like i i upfront from the the beginning of my employment i really mentioned that i'm muslim so uh so i have some like little requests like you know friday prayers i always have to go and if possible you know you can cater uh halal food for me is good you know if not i'm fine if i can bring in my own food it's fine <laughs> as long as you don't feel awkward me bringing my food there <laughs> with you it's fine i'll join you for for dinner too so yeah they are very nice they are actually uh my, my bosses are all very good they they know how to uh understand this because one thing is also in an international singapore is quite you know connected with different countries right so they should roughly know especially you know singaporeans we all have muslim brothers and sisters here so it's quite easy for them to adapt to this mashallah thank you so much for sharing uh that advice brother um what about um, old friends did you lose any old friends after you become a muslim many but it's okay uh you know i gained uh, a lot so it's okay uh the thing is uh it's fine even you know if we're alone we have allah with us right so we are not alone that's the thing right and i i lost some but for the better good and i think allah wanted to show me that they were not probably the best friends even mm. though i am not in a position to criticize i'm not perfect myself right but the thing is that maybe some of the habits were not the best so it was probably better for me to refrain to meeting with them uh other people that i used to meet for drinks um probably met them after that for just uh playing sports you know we change their habits so we don't go drinking but we play sports i'll be there that's all uh mm. but yeah it, it feels weird but i think as you grow up and you know you get older it's about choices that you make in your life mm. uh so i made those choices because i think just wanted to improve myself in becoming a Muslim. So you yeah. have to make those tough choices anyway. Uh, but yeah, so far, Alhamdulillah, you know, this is not really big struggle, I would say. There's a lot worse than that. Mm. Uh, mm. But I think that's a normal thing. Yeah. I think, okay, because Brother Iskander can't, you can, can't hear his uh, voice because of his uh, technical issues. He just want to share here that, you know, recently he just met his high school classmates two days ago and they still couldn't believe he's a Muslim because he was a hardcore atheist. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, wait, wait, let me see what he said here. What What do you say? Vow of silence. Okay, he, he took a vow of silence today. <laughs> so, uh, okay, my question next is, uh, how? what would you advise, what advice be for people who, um, you know, they really don't want to lose their friends and uh, maybe they're going through something like really tough right now. What can they do to overcome this uh, feeling of loss? You know, like maybe it's an old childhood friend even. Uh, of course, you know, in our opinion, maybe it's not the best because Allah has maybe felt that, you know, this person may not be on the same path with you. Um, but how would you help the person overcome? What what steps should the person take to overcome i think it's about priority because if they are your best friend so-called they will understand you and respect you for any choice that you make that's what i believe so um that's that's one thing and then we'll always lose people along the way i mean if you look at the prophet stories they've lost a lot of family members and friends uh much more worse than what we're experiencing like prophet Nuh, you know when you know the boat and everything was sinking and you know his wife and his son and 
ask them to join, still trying to forgive them because they don't believe in Allah, but still they decided, no, 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 don't worry, we'll go and climb that mountain, we'll survive, but they never did. So they lost, uh, even the prophets, right? They lost their very, very close people, not even friends, family members, and I'm talking about wife here or son. So um, that's okay. Uh, I think for some of them I've tried, I've tried to explain, you know, how Islam has benefited me and things like that. Mm -hmm. Some of them are really not in religion. They thought like, okay, this guy is trying to preach something. So they decided to uh, stop talking to me. But surprisingly, you will realize that some of the friends that were not very close friends to you before will end up being very good friends with you later. So this mm -hmm. is actually very amazing because when you change uh, people that maybe you even used to criticize then they are very close to you, they help you. And then you see that there's many similarities that actually you have with them. And then you will start to become very close friends with them. So that's also another route. So uh, yeah, that, that's that's for me. Those are the things that uh, I've experienced. MashaAllah, very beautifully said. I Especially I like how you reference the prophet life. You know, they are the best of us in terms of character and manners and, you know, they're the best way to guide human towards the the dean or so. And you said they lost a lot of friends. It's true, like, you know, uh, Noah, you said he was left with only his family. Some of, even his own family, is one of them, I think, also didn't follow him <laughs> and perished in the flood. So, you know, you can, it's the people closest to you, which you least expect to be like that, right? Would actually also some of them lose even the close family member for the prophets as well very beautifully said thank you brother next thing i want to ask okay now um after you reverted to islam i saw that you also took on some volunteering work at darul akam uh, so share a bit more on what, what makes spur you to to take this uh, volunteering spirit and uh, maybe you can advise some reverts or so you know if they maybe want to do something like that should they do it <laughs> yeah i think there was a too many times that uh, I got calls uh, from counseling of Daul saying, I have this brother, he's from so-and-so country. Usually they will refer to me, uh, people who are from, uh, like they are Caucasians, most likely Europeans. And I mean, the thing is that uh, culture plays a part. So I'm from there and I'm a convert. So, you know, they were open to have a conversation with somebody who's from Europe as well. So, and I feel it's my duty also to go and help if I can. So uh, I had circumstances where I met uh, some of those new brothers, uh, you know, for a coffee session. And uh, I, you know, asked them, you know, you can share anything with me, share the struggles that you have, anything you want to talk with, to me about, and then just to make them feel better. So it was people that just converted what issues or people who are not converting yet, but they were looking for it. And they had some things that they wanted to clarify in terms of, Western culture related to Islam. So they wanted to ask me, how did I do it? And blah, blah, blah. So, um, and, and because I got this kind of request, then I decided to uh, to do a bit more. So when Sister Mariam Vin from Daoul reached out to me, she was handling what you call the MNC Eurogroup, which is actually not Eurogroup, it's more like a, like a Caucasian group, I would say, because there is American, there is Australians. Uh, and, and so I decided to to think about it and say, yeah, why not? So then we do activities for our group and we try to bring more people. So that was the purpose. 
Um, and yeah, we, we organize sessions where we meet up, we share issues, you know, social gatherings, we do like Islamic talks around it. Of course, your COVID is a bit more difficult because you cannot really meet up and Europeans, they love to meet up. This is the thing, right? They love to meet up physically. Uh, so you have to really, uh, change the entire process of doing so. Uh, but yeah, I think it's important to help full stop. And I'm sure, you know, brother Afis here will, will agree with that. And I guess he has probably a lot more stories to share. <laughs> yeah. Right. Speaking of brother Hafiz, how did you uh, meet brother Hafiz? Oh, uh, well, I met him at Dawul as well, Dawul Akam, so the Muslim Convert Association of Singapore. And there was a time where uh, during Ramadan, uh, they would look for converts to help on, you know, volunteering or uh, any, any types of activities. And uh, so they will ask people to, uh, you know, uh, host some talks or do like uh, azan or do like, you know, cleaning after the uh, uh, iftar and many things like that. Uh, so I was definitely not qualified to do, uh, you know, the uh, the Bilal for Trawe prayer, uh, not qualified for that. Even though, you know, we look into the text and I was like, sorry, brother, this is not for me yet. <laughs> and uh, so I think I was recommended, I think brother Afis recommended that I should do the Azan, then why not? So I did a training session with him. Uh, we went in one of the rooms at the top, still remember very well, uh, one of the auditorium. And I look at him, take his posture, and he started to project the voice and do the azan. And I was like, well, mashallah, very nice. And he was teaching me some techniques on how to project my voice and what are the things that I should do. So really do some practice. And then alhamdulillah, a few days later, I uh, was doing the azan for the iftar. So this is how we met. Actually, we met even before we, no, sorry, the first time we met was during a masjid uh, visit. We went to, we went to visit, in uh, Pongol, the, the mosque in Pongol. Yeah. Yes, that's right. And I think yes. Omar Salma as well. Did we go together this one? No, Omar Salma. Masjid al in Pongol. And the Pongola? other one was the, yeah. vis the, the visit to Sri Mariaman Temple. Yes, 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 yes. Absolutely. Wow. Very good memory. So, yeah. MashaAllah. Okay. Talking about Radha Hafiz game, we're going to get Radha Hafiz up here to share a bit more. But before we go, I think Risi should have a very nice comment on uh, losing friends. I think Risi, would you like to share that? I, I, I think you have a very nice thing to say. Sure. Um, I just think that, well, like losing friends through Islam is actually kind of like impossible because we are becoming better and kinder human beings. And like, how can we lose anyone if we become better people? Like, like you said, you know, when, when your uncle like offered you alcohol, you, you gave him a hug and you gave him food and whatnot. Like, how can we lose people by just being nicer to them? It's not really possible. Right. Um, but the thing is like, we only lose people who are secretly ignorant and people who are not willing to give us a chance for us to express our kindness to them and those people they were never really friends in the first place so i don't think we can ever like lose friends through becoming better people but yeah Gosh. yeah very well said thank That's you sister Risti, for that nice uh touch to to the topic on how should we respond to you know the feeling of losing friends okay uh brother hafiz yes they'll come just want to Check, okay, a bit more about yourself. Share a bit of yourself and, you know, I, what I understand from, from Daru Akam also, you, you teach people uh, new reverts of how to solat and to pray, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, thank you for that. Um, okay, I'm very fortunate in life. Something I did not realize when I was young. Of course, when you're young, you don't, you don't know why things are like this, right? Um, my late father, right, was a Qari. He was, um, he 
uh, represented Singapore in the Musabakah, the Quran reading competition in Malaysia. And this is before I was born. So I don't have much knowledge about that. I just know that he finished second right in the year 1965. This is before I was born. <laughs> So people are telling me your father was a very good quarry. So as a kid, I was like, okay, what, what do I know? <laughs> so the thing is that he taught me to read Quran personally. He personally taught me how to read the Quran. Right? He didn't send me out somewhere to learn Quran and then come back. You were supposed to know how to read Quran. No, he taught me personally. So when I was in primary school, from when I was six years old, all through all the way through primary school, every night from Maghrib to Isha, he would teach me. So by the time I was 11 years old, I had khatam, I finished the Quran. At age, at age 11. Yeah? Wow. The Khatam ceremony was in my parents' hometown in Moa in uh, Johor, Malaysia. I remember it was wow. a December school holidays. We had the last one month of uh, intense training. Me and my cousin, it was my cousin who was one year younger than me. So I was 11. He was 10. Uh, he came to Singapore so to, 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 to speed up. The two of us would finish the Quran at the same time over in uh, Moa. Right? Uh, the year after that, he uh, my father passed away. I mean, he was already in ill health because I'm the youngest of 10 siblings. So my father was very old. I, I was 12. He was 59 already. Right? So he was already in ill health in, in, in his 50s. Right? Uh, so my siblings are much older than, than, than I am. Uh, and then, of course, I, I'm just like any kid in Singapore. I went to primary school, secondary school, went to poly. Uh, it was my time in poly that I first got involved in Darul Arkham. <laughs> this was the year 1992. Can you imagine that? 1992, before Darul Arkham was in uh, Onan Road. You know? it, was, it, it was another place, somewhere in Penggit Avenue in uh, uh, Putong Pasir. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. So that was where I first got involved in the in the old youth wing. They call, they call it back then. Uh, that's why uh, I was very lucky because for some okay, and that was the first time. Because back then, you could hardly find any Islamic material or Islamic classes in English. Okay, You go anywhere in Singapore. Imagine the converts back then. It was not easy. Those who could speak Malay, it was a bit easier. But those who did not speak Malay could hardly find anything. Right Back then, as I realized, there were only two places in Singapore where you can have uh, Islamic classes in English. Darul Arkham is one. Right, Another one is SKML, Singapore Kadalayanur Muslim League. Uh, a Tamil Tamil Muslim Association in Singapore. These were the only two places because there were Indian professionals who uh, who are high flyers right, in, in the corporate world, right? So they are the ones who can conduct classes in English. So these are the mm -hmm. only two places you can have that. Now you have Usas Mizi, Safina Institute, and you, know, <laughs> you, you can name 10 or 20, you know, easily off the cuff. So back then, it was very rare. And that was the first time as a 19-year-old to learn uh, Islamic lessons in English. It was the first time in my life because everything before that, everything I, everything I learned about Islam was in Malay. Right? Mm -hmm. So, of course, I got hooked. Like, I said, I, I'm, I'm enjoying myself because I'm learning is Islam for the first time in English. Right? So, went through national service and then uh, started working all that. And then uh, in 1997, I went to Scotland. So, I had to leave Singapore right, for the very first time, uh, living alone. That was a challenge because uh, the challenge was that I was in a place where I had no relatives. Right? So, then I realized that, hey, I can be anything I want. What, what if I decide not to, not to do solar? Right? But I was lucky because I was in a town called Aberdeen in the northeast of Scotland, right? Scottish Muslims, right? Scottish Muslims were mainly Pakistani, Bangladeshi, and Arab, right? Arabs from different regions, even Algeria, right? The, the French speaking ones. <laughs> that was my encounter with North Africans, right? Uh, so I was lucky because uh, in the mosque, they would you know, get me involved. They asked me to do other and all that. Um, also in the university mosque, because we, because many of us are university students, we, we don't have time to go to the main mosque. So even at the university mosque, I had the chance to become not just a Bilal, but also a Khatib for Friday prayers. You know? In Singapore, I don't get, I don't get, I don't get to become Khatib. I got, I was twenty-four years old. I got to become Khatib for Friday prayers over in in Scotland. So I was very very fortunate, right? It's just that I happen to know how to read Quran. I happen to know, but I didn't. I didn't realize because I assumed that maybe, maybe most Muslims are also like me. You know, they can also read Quran. But you know, that's not the case. 
I, I didn't mm. I didn't realize all this, right? Uh, until I got older, much older later in life when you know, okay, I mean badly. So that was my time in Scotland. So my exposure to Muslims were mainly from the uh, Indian subcontinent and Arab Muslims, right? Uh, came back to Singapore, uh, worked again, and then. I was a bit of a crazy young man at the time, right? I was still in my 20s. I told myself that I want to be in Europe again. I was not satisfied with whatever I experienced. So this time I went to Germany. After two years, I went to Germany. Wow. <laughs> okay, in Germany, the Muslims are of a different breed again. This time, it's Turkish Muslims. Right? Wow. I was in a small town. You know, I come from a country of Singapore, which is now five, six million people. So, okay, back then, five million, right? So I went to a town where I was... Uh, the town had a population of 25,000. You can actually walk from one end to the other. You know, small, small, you know, small European town. I was in that, that kind of place. Uh, the big difference between my life in Scotland and in Germany is that in Scotland, it was all English speaking. Right? That's why I could really help out and do a lot of stuff. But amongst the Turkish Muslims, amongst themselves, they speak Turkish. And so the khutbah, the, the Friday sermon, was always in Turkish. So for two years, and this is 2001, 2003, before we had YouTube and all that. And so for two years, I didn't get any Islamic knowledge. There was no one to teach me anything because I was in a place where I have no hardly any contact. With, there were only very few Muslims. Right? So the khutbah was in Turkish. So for two years, I didn't even get any knowledge. At least if the khutbah was in German, maybe I can, I can understand. No, but it was in Turkish. So amongst himself is Turkish speaking, but to this foreigner, okay, to this foreigner is German. <laughs> Yeah, so the only language I get to hear at home, I mean, in, 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 on campus, uh, anywhere, was always German. And only the mosque, I get to hear Turkish, right? Wow. So that was it. And, and it was difficult because I will tell you, this, this may surprise you, during my time in Germany, I was enjoying myself so much that I thought to myself, maybe if I decide to live here and, you know, not live the Islamic life, it's actually okay. But this is where, you know, uh, uh, Harold Fidawas happened to ask me what's my favorite verse in the Quran, right? One of the things yes. that the first thing that came to mind was It happens in a few places, one of which is in Surah Al-Anfal, chapter 8, verse 30. It says, they plot and plan and Allah plans too. Verily, Allah's plans are the best, <laughs> right? You can plan anything you want. You can think that you, can, you are in control of this and that and you want to do anything you want. Yeah, go ahead, right? Allah will show you something. That's where Allah showed me. That's that was the, the other thing is me. Many people ask me, why did I stay in Europe and stay there forever? Right? Somehow things did not work work out. I had to come back to Singapore. Then I realized mm -hmm. that later something that uh, my wife shared with me because my sisters, my my siblings told her and they didn't tell me that every day my mom would make dua for me that I come back. Whoa. So so I plan to be be there forever. I have a mother back home who makes dua that I come back. Because in my family, uh, there's, there's not much male presence. You must understand that uh, I have two older brothers, but they are not as loud as me. Right? My, my third brother also is in Malaysia. He's not, he's not here in Singapore. He's, he, he, has, he has seven children and five grandchildren. So he is busy with, with his own stuff. <laughs> he's much older than me, by the way. Right? So any male matters is actually me. But as a young man, I said, what, what did I know? I thought that I got, I, I, I got, other, I, I got brothers-in-law who should be taking the lead, right? I mean, as a mother, mm -hmm. why would she ask her son-in-law? She, she, would, she wouldn't ask her son-in-law. She would ask the son. So that's how important it was. And I only realized this when I got older. Then I realized that when my nephews and nieces, one thing also my family knows that no matter what, I cannot be, be away forever because I'm, very, I'm, very, uh, I'm a very loving uncle to my nephews and nieces. I've got 20 of them, by the way. <laughs> right? So they know that I'm very attached to them. And also when, as, when, when it's time for them to, you know, the last few years when they got married, engaged and all that, I'm the spokesperson for the family. Ah. So without me, there's no other because we don't have. I don't have uncles. My family, both my parents' sides, uh, my parents' uh, 
siblings and relatives, all that are all in Malaysia. It was my father who moved to Singapore. I mean, my parents moved to Singapore after World War II. My father was a, was a clerk with the British Royal Armed Forces. That's how we all became Singaporeans. So my family, my extended relatives are all in uh, Malaysia, right? So all the, when I was a bachelor, uh, every Hari Raya, right? My only uh, family is my own siblings. I only have a mom. My, our dad passed away a long time ago, right? So there's only mother and other siblings. So the only places I have to visit, uh, I live with my mom, of course, and my sister. So I, it's only my other siblings that I have to visit, right? There were no other family members. When I got married, I suddenly have, uh, my wife is my wife is Boyanese, by the way, Boyanese, uh, a very strong Indonesian ethnic, sub-ethnic group. So suddenly I have loads of relatives, right? Something that wow. I was not used to before. And suddenly I have to visit so many, this uncle, this aunt, and I, I, I couldn't, I could. I don't even know all of them in person by name. <laughs> I just know that I have so many relatives. People come to me and say, "You're half is right." Oh yeah, yeah. So you, you are oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, this relative and so on and so forth, right? Um, and I was, I was saying there was no male presence in the family. So when I first got married, uh, I realized something. You know, my in-laws taught me again. They don't teach me as in they tell me what to do, but they showed me that whenever okay, that time my again my mother-in-law was still alive. So whenever we, we go there every other Saturday, uh, every time there is. Uh, Prayer time, okay, Azan Zuhur, Azan Asar, Azan Maghrib, Azan Isha, everything will put will come to a halt. Everybody will gather together, and one of the men will actually take the lead to, to become the Imam. And of course, I'm one of them. I know amongst me and my in-laws, we can take turns, you know. Then I thought to myself, this is very good. You know? Then I asked, I asked that question, why didn't why 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 is it that in my family there's there's none of this? Then I realized that I've asked the dumbest question I've asked, ever asked to myself. And that's it, that's because I didn't do it. I didn't take the lead. I was depending <laughs> on other right. people. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's how important my, my presence in family is, you know, because it is something that I'm needed to actually do. There is no male presence in the family, right? Yeah. So I, I appreciated all these things when I was much older, right? And the other thing about Darakam is that how lucky I am that every single time I come back, they always ask me to do something. Either they ask me to read the Quran in ceremonies or they ask me to, you know, then yeah, they just ask me to help out, either befriending or just something that they will ask me to do. Right? So whether I was in Scotland, whether I was in Germany, I, every time I come back to Singapore, there is something for me to do. <laughs> it was only in, okay, I came back for good in 2003, but 2004, that's when I was asked to teach a Let's Pray class. Right? My mm. first uh, impression, my, my first reaction was, I'm not an Ustas. Okay, I know you're, just now you're calling me Ustas, right? I had to get used to that name because firstly, I'm not, right? I'm from the secular world. <laughs> okay, but... But in recent times, I had to get used to it because not only I'm teaching prayer classes, I'm also teaching Quran. So naturally, people call me that name. You know? And also in terms of the ARS, the Asatiza Recognition Scheme in Singapore, in tier one, these are the real Asatiza because they are Arabic speaking, they, are, they, they graduate, graduate from, uh, from Islamic universities, they have Islamic degrees, right? And they have, certain, they have certain things where they actually go through a certain process, they are under tier one. For myself and people who teach Quran, people who teach Salah and all that are under tier two. So of course, people sometimes refer to us as Ustaz or Ustazah. You have to get used to it. Okay? But that, that's the reality. So uh, in 2004, when they asked me to teach a Let's Pray class, I said, I know how to lead a prayer, but you don't ask me to teach. I'm not, I'm not even a teacher at the time. I don't know how to teach someone how to, how to do prayers. You know? They said, no, 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 it's okay. You, you can do it. Uh, you just attend a class. You sit in. That time, there was an Ustaz, uh, full-time staff, was actually teaching, teaching a Let's Pray class. So I was asked to sit in. Right? So what they did was, uh, eventually, this Ustaz did not take the class. So at some, somewhere in the third or fourth lesson, they asked me to take over the class. <laughs> it was a sabotage. It was a beautiful thing. It was really a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. And from then on, I realized that it's actually not that bad. I can, I can always share. I mean, 
just teaching how to pray is quite basic. Right? Of course, I, I gain educational skills, how to teach properly and all that along, along the way. You know? So it's been 17 years now. Right? And not mm -hmm. only do I get to teach uh, solar in the Rorakam, I'm also a registrar now. <laughs> right? I'm mm -hmm. also a commercial registrar. Uh, I'm also, I also, uh, yeah, commercial registrar. And also I'm the, the Bilal for, as, as, you, as you all know about, about this, uh, at certain mosques on Tuesday and Wednesday mornings, I am the Bilal for Subo at the Masjid Abdul Alim Siddiq in uh, Teluk Kurau. Uh, on, Tuesday, on Thursday and Saturday mornings, I'm the Bilal Subo for uh, Masjid Darul Aman Mosque, the one near Yunus MRT. If you pass by Yunus, if you take the MRT, you pass by Yunus, you see a mosque there, that, that, that other mosque. Uh, I also do that on alter, alternate Sunday night. So before before this uh, podcast, right, I was doing my Maghrib and Isha Bilal UT and I rush home to be sure that I'm going to be online before the show actually starts. Ah. <laughs> right? So I'm just very fortunate that I get to do all these things. And like I said, my plan was to be a, maybe I don't have to be a Muslim, I can just live there and you know, live there forever, right? But Allah has other plans for me, right? So yeah. I can never say that, oh, I, I, I did all this because I'm good, no, because that's why I'm, uh, people ask me to do these things. No way I'm going to say that. <laughs> yeah. Easily, Allah could have, you know, Allah is He's the turner of hearts. If he wants to switch, he wants to turn, the, he will turn the switch, something will happen, something will happen. No? So don't underestimate what Allah can do to us, right? Always ask for good things and always ask him to guide us. You ask for guidance, okay? He is Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim. Ar-Rahman, the entirely merciful, Ar-Rahim, the especially merciful. The more we go back to him, the more we thank him, the more we are grateful to him, the more he will give us. So never worry. His plans are always the best. MashaAllah, very beautifully well said, uh, Ustad. Uh, just want to check with you, okay, of all the things you thought, right, what, is there something you like to teach the most? Like you oh, teach uh, Salat, you teach Quran, you teach Adhan. Yeah. <laughs> Correct. They're all nice. I mean, I appreciate all of them. But if you ask me for just one where I can describe a bit more, I really love teaching the Sunnah Solah, which, which I'm teaching on Saturday afternoons. Uh, the Let's Pray 1, Let's Pray 2 class in Darakam is uh, a male teaching the males and a female teaching the females because it's quite basic, right? You need a lady to teach how the ladies how to pray. Otherwise, they start flapping their wings. <laughs> so a lady needs to need how to pray like, like a lady. You know? <laughs> so you separate that. But uh, a slightly advanced class like Sunnah Prayer Course is where I got to cover the, the likes of Surah Sunnah Duha and tahajjud, and hajat, and tawbah, and istikhara, and witir, and so many others, right? So, and it's a mixed class. So, you, I usually teach a class of like five to ten people for Let's Pray One. Uh, my wife would have, you know, ladies are always more enthusiastic. My wife would teach a class of 10, 15 ladies, right, for Let's Pray One, and Let's Pray Two as well. But in my Sunnah prayer course, I have about 40 students. Right? It's, oh, it's an online sure. class, it's about 40 students. So it's a mix of uh, men and ladies. It's a mix of families. Sometimes families come together when, when we're having it face-to-face. -face. You have uh, like parents and their children all come together. The, the parents make sure that these ch their children come for this class and go and learn, go and learn Salah Sunnah. Right? <laughs> because we also know that initially the command for the mandatory daily Salah wasn't five. We have five mandatory daily prayers. Right? You probably know the story of uh, Isra Mi'raj. The initial command was 50 daily prayers. It was Nabi Musa who asked our Prophet Muhammad, peace upon him, said, go back to your Lord and ask for reduction because Nabi Musa knows that we cannot cope with, with five, let alone 50. Yeah, it started off as 50. So it came down, it came down, it came down until it got to five. Nabi Musa asked for another reduction. This time, Nabi Muhammad Wasallam was feeling ashamed, right? In Hokkien, we say, it's not in the hadith, but he could not ask. He could not ask Allah for a reduction. But bear in mind, when we are traveling, there's something called Qasr and Jama'ah. Qasr is a shortening. Zuhur, Asr, and Isha, which are four rakah solah, become two rakah. I reduce the two rakah. And 
combine zohar and asar and maghrib and isha get to be combined to become back to back within one within a few minutes you can actually do them back to back so there are there are further reductions from the five mandatory daily prayers in certain situations that's how merciful allah is to us <laughs> thanks for sharing that i'll, I'll start um, okay so what what did you teach brother bilal uh, i believe he also came to you for uh, lessons right yeah right just now we talked about the story of bilal right the story of bilal ibn robba right so those are amongst the things you can share in in a in a in a in a, in a little azan course right in a little azan workshop uh, darul akam does make me do these workshops before ramadan because we also we always want converts to come forward on saturday nights right when we have of iftar for a convert to come to the mic and do that it's not easy because some of them, some of them know how to, uh, to do azan but not everybody is as outgoing as you know <laughs> As, as assertive as uh, our Guillaume Bilal here who can do Adhan in front of 200, 300 people, you know, right? People can tremble in their boots if you ask them to do in front of, just do in front of 5, 10 people, they're already trembling. <laughs> ask them to do in front of hundreds. It's not always so easy. But the whole idea is uh, they always ask me to get some converts to learn about Adhan. So sometimes I conduct a workshop for 30 male converts, right? Maybe one or two might might show up and say, okay, I'm ready to do the Adhan in, in public for, you know, for Darul Akam on Saturday nights, right? So that's what they actually ask me to do. Uh, usually before Ramadan. Uh, so the last time I did that was in 2019. And you know, 2020, 2021, of course, we couldn't get to do that anymore. Mm. Oh. That's quite, yeah. That would be amazing to see. I have been, actually, I've never go to Darakam here uh, live other than before. Maybe, inshallah, if the pandemic is over, I will go to do that next. Yeah. yeah. So um, talking about the Adhan, right? Uh, did, how did you guys, you know, Learn, learn. How do you teach the Adhan? Was uh, Brother Bilal easy for him to to pick it up? You know, is it sounding more French or something? <laughs> no, there's always the accent. I mean, no, you you may not know this, but if I were to read the Quran or do the Adhan in front of Arab people, they will tell me my my Malay accent is very strong. Because you might not hear it because you're you're not that familiar with Arabic, right? But Arabic native speakers will tell me my Arabic is strong. Just like when I speak French, when I speak, you know, when I was in Germany, if I'm at a bank or something, I speak German. Everybody can turn their heads and. And look at this guy. You know, like, like I've never heard a German with a Malay accent, right? So is it, is it, I don't know whether, find, whether they find it sexy or whether they find it horrible, disgusting that you know your 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 German is so bad. You know, sometimes we we criticize people for their lack of good English. There was one time I had to you know back then I had to make a call to my German teacher, right? Um, so she was living with an elderly lady. So I think I called quite late. It was past ten thirty. So. I, you know, on the phone, how else can you do? You don't have something to refer to. So I was struggling with, I was only a few months in Germany trying to speak German. So that lady, as she spoke, uh, told my teacher later on, just now your student called, uh, his German are horrible. Uh. So how do you, you know, just like you criticize someone's English, how do you think I felt when the person said, this, this guy's German horrible? Uh. Mm. <laughs> so uh, th- thank you so much for, I mean, that, that sharing. I mean, to know that, You know, uh, it's not easy for someone, especially you know, from from a previous cultural background, right, to to do something that is originally in Arabic, right, and but still we strive hard to do it well. Um, so now, um, just just curious, okay, would you and brother Bilal, you know, do a duet on the Adhan? Would you would you be open to doing that live for us to hear the Adhan? Inshallah, okay. Okay, good. So, guys, um, before we go to that, that's the surprise we have for you for tonight. Okay, we're coming to the end of the stream. Um, I I see that most of you do not have questions for the live, but I think you you probably inshallah have benefited a lot from tonight's sharing. Um, uh, any questions from the panelists before we we go to the the highlight for tonight? 
Beautiful sharing. Okay, thank you so much, brother Iskander. <laughs> yeah, he took a vow of silence, so I have to check his messages. <laughs> All right. All right, so not much further ado, guys. Okay, um, next week, uh, just to share with you, we'll be talking about heaven and hell. Uh, is it real? Uh, so the topic will be about heaven and hell. And so far, we have gone through 10 episodes with you on Shahara Night Live. So I would say we have come to the end of season one. <laughs> like you know like tv show like that but <laughs> next 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 week will be season two uh episode one of season two uh but okay without much further ado i'm so excited to share tonight's event with uh you the azan done by both brother hafiz and uh, brother bilal so tonight we have a bilal section you know like brother bilal and a bilal talking about bilal and azan <laughs> Okay, Bilal exception. All right, so yeah. All right, so I'll put you up here, and I can't go below. Okay, never mind. It's fine. Okay, we can start. Bismillah. Okay, Bismillah. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah. Ashhadu an la Ashhadu anna Muhammadar Rasulullah Ashhadu anna Muhammadar Rasulullah
La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah Thank you so much For the adhan I can just really imagine myself You know All the way I don't know why Like in a desert somehow With you <laughs> I wish <laughs> I wish I could go to the desert now actually You know to Salat And I mean I, I mean, I've seen some of Saiful Rahman's travel When we were at Morocco And they did uh, Salat in the, in the desert Morocco I think Wow that was so beautiful And uh, I can just imagine You doing Dazan there And uh, and We all doing Solat together the, the the camaraderie And all that Is just So amazing And the spirit Is so strong Yeah Thank you so much For tonight everyone For tuning in And for uh, Brother Hafiz For coming here And Brother Bilal uh, Inshallah We'll see you again For more of our live streams And uh, Thank you so much everyone And Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Good night, everyone. See you next week, inshallah. Wait, <laughs> but Iskandar uh, has something to say. <laughs> okay. Okay. Good night.